Hello, this is Ian Wolfe, producer of Diffusion Science Radio. This show depends on your support. Please make a donation directly with the PayPal button at www.diffusionradio.com or support Diffusion by downloading a free audiobook from audibletrial.com science or go to diffusionradio.com support and click on an Amazon link or buy my nano drones. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, how robots on Earth can tell us more about space. And the language of touch. But first up, here's the news. Eye-gazing may be mind-altering. An Italian psychologist has discovered that when two people gaze into each other's eyes for 10 minutes while sitting in a dimly lit room, they lose contact with reality and start hallucinating. No drugs are needed. Giovanni Caputo, from the University of Urbino in Italy, had 15 women and 5 men sit in a dimly lit room a metre away from their designated partner and stare into their eyes for 10 minutes. The room was dim enough for colours to be hard to make out, but bright enough to clearly see the other person's face. The control group of 20 people sat in pairs in dim rooms, staring at a wall a metre away from their seat. The people looking into another person's eyes said they'd had a compelling experience unlike anything they'd felt before. They scored higher than the control group on a questionnaire about reduced colour intensity, Sounds seeming quieter or louder than expected, becoming spaced out, and time seeming to drag on. 90% of the eye-gazing group agreed that they'd seen some deformed facial traits. 75% said they'd seen a monster. 50% said they saw aspects of their own face in their partner's face. And 15% said they'd seen a relative's face. Dissociative states like these can be brought on by abuse and trauma, by taking drugs such as ketamine, alcohol and LSD, and now by staring into someone's eyes for 10 minutes. Back in 2010, Caputo discovered that people staring into the mirror in a dim room started hallucinating huge deformations of their own faces, seeing the faces of alive or deceased parents, archetypal faces such as an old woman, child or the portrait of an ancestor, animal faces such as a cat, pig or lion, and even fantastical and monstrous beings. All the participants felt that the face in the mirror wasn't theirs. Caputo says the effects of actually staring into the face of someone else is shown to produce much stronger results. The paper was titled Dissociation and Hallucinations in Diaged Engaged Through Interpersonal Gazing and was published in the journal Psychiatry Research. So remember... 
that gazing into someone's eyes can be revealing and even romantic. But if you keep on staring, then you'll likely see some really weird stuff. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. What if you could point one telescope in 150 different directions at once? Nuria Lorente is a software engineer at the Australian Astronomical Observatory. I met her at the Astronomical Data Analysis Software and Systems Conference. I began by asking her, what are starbugs? So starbugs are tiny, tiny robots which uh, we're developing at the AAO. And each of these robots carries an optical fibre. And we use these starbugs to observe many, many galaxies or objects at once. This is to get around the problem that telescopes can point only in one direction at a time. Traditionally what we do is when we want to do spectroscopy, so actually break down the light from an object into its component colours, we look at one object for, say, four hours, then we move to the next object for four hours. If you want to observe a group of, say, a 3,000 galaxy survey, it would take many, many nights of observing to actually do this. So to get around this, we have these starbugs, which take a, an optical fibre and place each fibre at the location of one galaxy in the optical field. And that way, rather than observing one galaxy every four hours, we observe 150 galaxies. And that allows us to do a very large survey in a very short amount of time. At the AAO, for the last 19 years, we have had an instrument called 2DF, which is a robot positioner of optical fibres. It gets around this problem of, of multiplexing many objects at once by picking up a fibre and placing it into position. But it only has one arm. It's a one-armed robot. And so it means that to configure its 400 fibres takes it around 45 minutes. A way to get around this is to have many arms. And this is where the Starbucks come in. So we have in our current uh, instrument, we have 150 of these Starbucks, and they all move at once. And so we take the problem of configuring an entire field on the sky in 45 minutes to configuring it in five minutes. You've got these little robots that are moving over the field of view of the telescope, collecting some of the light that reflects off the parabolic dishes, uh, whether this is radio or, or light. This is light. It's light. It's light. So these robots are crawling across. Do they block any of the light themselves? The robots will block a tiny amount of the light. But don't forget what we're trying to do is the light that matters. The light we're trying to collect is the light that goes into the optical fibre. And so anything outside that we're not really interested in. Now, it's a very interesting question because the robots do limit how close together two adjacent targets can be. So we can't, we can't observe very, very close targets. The minimum separation between two targets is about 10 arc minutes. So it's not a huge issue because we want our field of view is six degrees on the sky, so it's a very large field of view. And we can observe that field of view over multiple nights. 
So one night we configure 150 Starbucks in one way, the next night we configure them slightly differently. And like this, we are trying to get very, very high completion. So 90% completion on the galaxies in a given six degree section of the sky. So 10 arc seconds is how much? The, the separation between the two things that you can measure, the star bugs. Two star bugs can be placed within one centimetre of each other. So the, the star bugs themselves are just under a centimetre in size and we can get them very, very close together. Um, and that translates to 10 arc minutes on the sky. And so when you say completion, you mean getting all the galaxies in your field of view? Yes, it's getting all the galaxies within a certain distance from us and within a certain colour range. The instrument that Starbugs are going to be used for in the first instance is called Taipan. And this is uh, associated with the Taipan Galaxy Survey, which is a survey to study 500,000 galaxies in the southern sky, which is a large fraction of them. How long have Starbugs been used? This is the, the first time that we're using Starbugs. We have been developing them over the last five years. And the reason for, for existence is to get over this problem of only being able to move one optical fibre into the field of view at a time. This allows us to move 150, 300 in the future Starbugs at once because they are individually controllable. Also, the Starbug technology will allow us to swap the single optical fibre for hexabundles, for example, which are used in the, uh, in the SAMI project. These are 61 optical fibres that are fused together to give you uh, a much wider view of your particular object. Or we can put lenslets on the front of the fibre, which again gives us uh, different advantages. If somebody's even working on putting a, a cleaning module on the front of a Starbug so that we can clean the glass fill plate over which the Starbugs move without having to take the instrument out of the telescope. But that is future work. So the robots can be used for cleaning or observing? That's right. The Taipan instrument is going into the UK Schmidt telescope at the Siding Springs Observatory. And the way it is located within the telescope itself, once it's in, it will be quite difficult for us to, to clamber into the telescope tube and, and clean things around. So people are looking into various ways of doing some of these maintenance tasks. So there's no observations yet? That's right. The instrument is currently in our integration lab at the AAO offices in Sydney and we are working on testing the various systems, so bringing the mechanical, electronics and software systems all together and testing them before shipping over to, uh, to the telescope. And so when will it all start observing? The instrument will be taken up to the telescope next year and we expect that we will start science commissioning midway through next year, so that involves checking that the calibrations are correct, checking that when you point something at the sky, when you put a particular star bug at a position on the sky, it really goes there, that the metrology camera, which keeps track of where the star bugs are at any given point, that that is all working, that that's playing nicely with the telescope control system, and that the data are all being collected 
as we would expect. What are some of the interesting software problems you're working on? Uh, perhaps one of the most interesting problems to me is how do we tell each starbug to move to its position? So finding a path for each starbug from where it is at the moment to where we want it to go. Don't forget we have 150 starbugs in a circle of 30 centimeter diameter. So they're very closely packed. Also the sky, the configuration that we want these starbugs to take can either be quite sparse or it can be clumpy if we are studying clusters. So uh, an interesting problem is how do you stop the starbugs from bumping into each other as, uh, as they find a path? How do you stop them from getting tangled? Because each starbug has a tail, which is the, uh, the optical fiber. And we don't want these to get tangled up. Not just because of the, the physicality of it, we don't want a mess of tangled fibers in the telescope, but also once the fibers are tangled, that actually degrades the signal that we get from from the sky. So that, that has been a very interesting software project. What we do to, to find the path is we look at all 150 starbugs, where they are, where they are going, and we check to see if there are any bugs that don't interact with any other bugs, that just can go straight to where they're supposed to be. So we move those and forget about them. Then those that remain, we see whether we can set up a traffic light system. So if there are two star bugs that need to cross each other, just like if you were going along in your car, we tell one star bug to stop, wait for the other one to cross, and then it can move. And that avoids collisions and allows both of them to get to where they're going in quite a short time. But of course, there are still some star bugs that even with that method um, can't get to where they're going. And then we move into a more sophisticated pathfinding technique where we look at how much it would cost in terms of time for a starbug to get to where it is going via many, many paths. So we try many paths around which don't bump into anything. And then from all those paths, we have this, this cost function and we minimize that cost. And we have 90% success rate on, uh, on getting those starbugs to, to where they're supposed to be going. What we're working on now, which is perhaps the most interesting problem, is the remaining 10% of starbugs, which can't be moved with any of those three algorithms. And maybe in six months' time, I'll have a, an answer for you on that. But what we're looking at, at now are things like swarm algorithms, which is a very interesting area of computer science where you pretend that your problem is being solved by a swarm of insects, say ants, and you set up the problem by setting up your little ants. Each ant takes a different path. Each ant is representing one starbug. Ants, as they, uh, as they travel, they leave a trail of pheromones. And the way we, uh, we look at this is we follow the trail of strongest pheromone, and that will give us the best path from where the starbug is to where it is going. So it's a nice example of where we take what happens in the natural world, and we use it for, for our astronomy robots. 
And you're based... In Sydney. In Sydney? Right. No, the telescope is at Coonabarabran. Right. Um, at Siding Spring Observatory. But the, the technology development mostly happens in Sydney, at our Sydney offices. Nuria Lorente, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me on your show. That was Nuria Lorente with her Starbug robots, exploring the galaxy by enabling telescopes to point in many different directions simultaneously. Thank you to Helen Sim for helping to organise the interview. Boy, just look at those stars. You almost feel as if you could touch them. Do you suppose we ever will? Will what? Oh, reach the planet, the moon, space travel. Mm, no doubt about it. Oh, maybe it'd be a long time before we reach the planets. They're pretty far away. But a space station first, and from there, on out to the moon. That's on the way, and, and maybe quicker than we think. Why, Dad, you're the last person on Earth I'd expect to believe that. Yeah. Why, Betty, your father's not entirely lacking in imagination. That's what I mean. Imagination, science fiction stuff. Dad's always been one for the facts. Well, I know one thing. If they do build a space station in my lifetime, or send a ship to the moon, I'm going to be ready to go. I'm going to have my name on the waiting list. Are you? Going to go? Sure. No, no. I mean, are, are you going to be ready? I don't see why not. It's going to take someone with a spirit of adventure. I still say, are you going to be ready? I don't know what you're getting at. The facts, as Betty says. The fact is, adventure will be just one little part of it. Right now, you and Betty will have to get ready for the other things it'll take. Like what? Like what you know, what you understand. What courses are you taking next year? Oh, my schedule's already made out. In the ninth grade, you have to take mathematics and English and history. No science? Well, I had my choice of taking general science this year or next, but I put it off a year. Then you put your trip off a year. How come? <laughs> What's the matter with you, Betty? <laughs> I was just trying to imagine the look on Mr. Bristow's face if he thought somebody had enrolled in general science just to get ready to go to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> we are getting a little off the beam, aren't we? But only because we were talking about the moon. Sarah Brooker from Science in Public created Fresh Science to encourage early career scientists to find the story in their science and get it out to the public. The Bright Spark Challenge is for these scientists to explain their research in the time it takes for a sparkler to burn down. Here's Heba Kamas from the University of New South Wales. She has until her sparkler runs out, after which Sarah Brooker will ask her some questions. When the audience asks the questions, the microphone doesn't pick them up too well but Sarah repeats the questions for us. Heba Kamis from the University of New South Wales, coming up to the stage. Here is your microphone. Happy birthday. So we take for granted that we can just skillfully pick up an, any number of objects in our day-to-day -day life, like this sparkler, for example. But this ability is actually relies on the signals that come from thousands and thousands of little receptors in our fingertips. And unfortunately for people who have amputations and rely on prosthetics, they don't have this sense of touch. So my work is focused on understanding the language that these receptors uh, communicate with to the brain 
So what we've done is we've been able to use a whole population of these signals and decode them to understand the characteristics of the object that's being picked up or manipulated. Thank you. Well done. <laughs> so you're talking about receptors in, in the hand. So how did you research that? So we, we've got monkey experiments and human experiments. Luckily, I'm only involved in the human ones. We have live subjects. They get paid very well. They sit in a chair. We insert an electrode into their nerve and we record what the um, uh, nerves are, are signaling. You insert a needle into their nerve. Into their median nerve. Yeah. And then what, what do you do? And then we stimulate their finger with uh, a robotic arm. It's very cool. It just pokes their finger repeatedly and we just record. You're recording yeah. the, signals the signals that are happening yeah. down the nerve. And so why is this different to how we currently study nerves? What have you done that's different? Um, so they have been doing this actually for about 40 years, but most research has been focused on understanding what a single receptor is doing and understanding the, the types of receptors and what they respond to. What we've done that's different is actually look at an entire population of receptors because we don't just get information from one receptor. We need the information from all of them to understand what it is that we're touching. So we've been able to look at the entire population and decode that information into something useful. So into something useful, what, what are you getting out on the other side? Uh, so an estimate of what is happening at the fingertip. So we can say, for example, it, the finger is being pressed with this much pressure or, you know, the, the object is this shape or the object has this texture or things like that. Yep. How do you measure that? Are you using brain waves or...? No, no, no. So directly from the, from the, the signals electrode. from the electrodes, yeah. we, we've developed a model that can decipher that information. Cool. Anyone want to be a subject? $20 <laughs> an hour. $20 yeah. an hour. There you go. Yes. Um, how do you actually decode all those action potentials flowing along that median nerve? Um, so yeah, you got to, how, many, how many nerves did you see on the end so of each finger? So we have approximately 2,000 receptors in every finger mm. pad. That's just the, the very distal part. We don't actually do it in real time. So we record everything and we pay students very, very little to actually clean the signals for us uh, because it's very time consuming. And then we, we just put the clean signals into the model. Yep. So it's just single, yeah. It's basically like zeros and ones in your computer and we need to decipher that. So yep. we have a question over here and then down here. Over here, thank you. Are you looking at normal healthy yeah, these are at this stage. It's normal healthy. Thank you. At this stage, it's normal healthy people. Um, we have uh, we do have some perception studies with people with neuropathy, but we haven't done anything yet with the actual responses yet. Now I can't see. Yes, down here. Um, someone, I think it was yourself, mentioned amputees at the beginning. Yes. Um, what are you hoping to gain by doing this that can help amputees? So at this so stage, the, sorry, the question sorry. was, how is this going to help amputees? At this stage, it's just basic understanding of how it is that these, uh, this information is actually delivered, which, so at the moment, amputees with prosthetics, they don't have any tactile feedback at all. They just have control over basically the position of the, the hand. So if we can understand how it is or what kind of information we need to perform this, this gripping uh, successfully, then we will know what we need to deliver to someone who has this prosthetic so that they can perform it. 
Exactly. So then we have to start thinking about what kind of sensors do these prosthetics need so that we can get that information and deliver it to the, to the amputee. So we're at the very start of a long journey. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, down at the back. Um, are you all still looking at the signals coming from the brain? No, no. Just, just the, from the sensors, yeah. Are you volunteering? She just sticks, it's just a little it's needle. Just a li it's very, very small. It's actually at about 20 microns in diameter. It is that small, yes. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes, at the back. Does that do any damage to the, to the <laughs> The funny thing is they always ask about the needle and they never ask about this big industrial robot that we have that's poking their finger. No, the needle, the electrode is too small to actually damage anything. It literally slides past the cells. It's that tiny, yeah. Wow. I've done it myself, it's fine. You know, I've just got this, this tremor, but that's, it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> no. Thank you, so where to from here? What's your next stage of your, pro, of your research? Uh, get more funding first, <laughs> and then, um, yeah, so we're hoping to do more experiments with different types of stimu stimulus, because mm -hmm. you can only do so much with your stimulus, so mm -hmm. we want to do different stimulus and make sure that our method is robust enough to apply to a variety of, of mechanical... So this particular stimulus is about picking up pressure? So this one was, yeah, uh, well, force, force and twisting. Okay. Yes. All right, well, thank you. Can you join me in thanking thank Heather? You. That was Heba Karmas from the University of New South Wales studying the language of touch. A special thank you to Science and Public for permission to broadcast the Bright Spark Challenge. And a big thank you to Dominique from Strasbourg for sending a donation. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Kuringai, 2 NVR in Nambaka Valley, 2 X in Canberra, and 3 MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation Science 360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then explore more than 700 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. 
You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.